Hi, I'm Perry. And I'm Brooke, and this is Double Take. In today's episode, we had a conversation with Jamie Margolin. She's a 16-year-old who lives in Washington State, and she's suing her governor over inaction over climate change. I found the conversation really enlightening and fascinating, and if you're interested in learning how to mobilize our generation and learn how to advocate and really understand how to use social media effectively, I would definitely listen and to learn more about what you can do to combat climate change. She is also the founder and president of an organization called Zero Hour and they are organizing a march in Washington um, this summer. So if you wanna be a participant in that and uh, learn more, listen on. First, we just can you just give us a little background on yourself, like where you're from and how you got involved with activism? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm 16 and I got my start in act. I live in Seattle um, and I got my start in activism a little bit after the election. Um, at first, I was an intern for the Democratic campaign headquarters in Seattle. But then, as you know, that didn't work out. And so there was a while where I was just really sad and just, you know, wallowing in defeat. But then I decided that I was, instead of, like, focusing on campaigns, I was going to focus on an issue that had always been, like, really important to me, but I'd always been too scared to, like, act on it. Because the thing with climate change is it's so scary and so overwhelming that sometimes it's almost easier to pretend, you know, it's not, it doesn't exist or it's not a factor. I mean, when I say pretend doesn't exist, I don't mean deny the science. I mean, just like not think about it at all. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that for a while because climate change is just so scary. You know, the existential threat, the idea that life will not go on and that it's our fault is just so scary. And it's like bigger than like any other issue. So I just, I didn't want to think about it, but it was always in the back of my mind. And after the election, I kind of decided, you know what, I needed to act on this. I needed to do something about this. So I joined a local environmental organization here in Seattle, and then it just snowballed. Like, I just started working more and more and more. I went to Olympia to lobby several times in my state legislature. Um, I, I, I just kept doing more and more work until suddenly I became a full-time, you know, community organizer outside of school. So that's, like, the thing I do. That's, like, my activity. Um, and then after about a year and a half of just organizing with no and, – and being an activist I, on climate change, I realized that, um, that, that the world needed to kind of see how much people cared about it because – especially young people. And so that's when I decided to start Zero Hour. Uh, so um, what is this organization? Can you just give us some background on it? And when did you, and when did you start it? Yeah. Um, so the organization is called Zero Hour. Um, the reason behind that name is that it's zero hour to act on climate change. So it's kind of emphasizing the urgency. Um, I started it in the August of 2017, at first it was just like me and a few other kids who I met over the internet. Um, and then slowly we began to grow and we're planning, um, pretty much the goal of our organization is to bring national attention to young people and the issue of climate change and how, you know, how it affects us and how there's no more time to act. And um, pretty much we're organized, we're a student-led, youth-led and youth-centered organization um, and we're national. So we're organizing a student mobile march this summer, July 21st, um, and a student lobby day the day a few days before that. Um, we're pretty much, we as young people are calling for an end to business as usual on climate change. We're calling, we're pretty much saying enough is enough to our leaders continuing to make this problem worse, continuing to allow fossil fuels to destroy our planet. And, yeah, we're, we're pretty much trying to bring national attention, um, use the power of the voices of young people to um, start to get the ball rolling on climate action. I really love how successful you've been in mobilizing youth and really garnering support for your organization. And I think a lot of people our age can learn a lot from what you've done. And just people that listen to this podcast, I think just telling um, our listeners how you actually mobilized people and got support and have grown a social media following and 
um, have published articles? Like, how did you get that support? It was really just building on a lot of it for most of the time. And it's still like that because it's still going to be a long, um, you know, a long slog of a lot of hard work until July where we want to capture national attention. But I mean, you just really, you work at it and you kind of, you go out of your way to reach out to people and make connections and send emails and go on the phone. Like this is, it's not easy. Like you don't just start something and then a week later there's an article about you in Rolling Stone. Like, um, you have to work and, and make those connections and build out your organization and really be passionate about it. And then, you know, eventually one connection will lead to another connection or someone will find you on social media and then it'll start to grow. And obviously you can't just aimlessly work like you have to have some sort of strategy, but it's really just about getting yourself off the ground. And if you're passionate about it, finding the right people to work with and, and finding, um, like the, the right connection. And, um, another part of that is, um, in our day and age, how to use social media effectively to um, get support and awareness for what you're doing. So can you talk a little bit about how you've used social media um, to get support for Zero Hour and your march? Yeah, well, first of all, we wouldn't have existed if it weren't for social media. This is my idea. Um, and But I reached out to someone who, you know, responded to an Instagram story and was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, so... I mean, we are all over the country, and there's no way that we could be working together if it weren't for the Internet. Like, we do online, like, video conferencing for our calls, and we, you know, we're constantly on the phone. Like, I'm in Seattle, but then, you know, someone else is in Baltimore, and someone's in Chicago, and then another team member's in D.C. So, really, we couldn't exist without the Internet because that's how we communicate. And social media is really helpful in getting the word out in an easy and free way. I mean the place where a lot of movements have started. Um, so, yeah, we definitely are using social media and encourage people to follow us on social media um, at This Is Zero Hour um, because that's a good way of just spreading information. Yeah, our movement was born on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I saw your Insta- uh, Instagram post on Zero Hour yesterday doing a, a hashtag feature Friday on um, the mm-hmm. 23-year-old who did the web design um, for your mm-hmm. uh, website. So... How did you get people um, to really help you out and devote their time? And did you have to invest money in this? Because I feel like today, in this day and age, you're competing with people's for people's attention, you know? Because like, people are devoted to so many different things. And especially as high school students, we not, you know, school is kind of a full-time job already. And I think that's hard for a lot of adults to understand. So, um, yeah, how did you uh, get people to be really committed and actually work on this? Well, I mean, the way to do it is it's, it's an idea, it's a vision that we share. And so we have this dream. You know, I'm a, you know, we're all volunteers. Like, no one is getting paid for this. Obviously, we're raising money to, you know, pay for things like making the actual march happen. But none of us are, like, hired staff. or right. no, None of us get any money because every penny that we raise has to go to, you know, making um, this movement possible. So it's, it's less about, you know, join my thing, like, oh, I'm doing this and you should come do what I'm doing. It's like, there's this dream, there's this vision, and if people support it, if, if it's their own, if they own if they make it their own, it's not just like, I'm going to help Jamie with this. It's just that Jamie has this vision and this idea, and I have, you know, I like that and I want to work towards that, and now it's ours. Like, it's not... You know, someone can start something, but eventually, like, it's not mine anymore. It's, it's you know, a movement is never meant to be, like, one person's thing. Otherwise, it's not a movement. Um, it's just an idea, and it doesn't go anywhere. So the way people commit time is just getting them stoked about, you know, the idea of, you know, young people rising up. Because a lot of people are really scared of climate change, and it's affecting so many people. So the idea of, like, young people rising up and calling for an end to this is appealing. And, um, you know, we're always looking for new volunteers, and people volunteer their time. Um, Some people are working a lot on this. Some people, you know, come and go. Some people, um, you know, just do a few tasks. It's really... It's the way that we get people involved is just they like the idea and it becomes theirs. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I, I often think about how 
a lot of young people today and how all movements have started is exercising our First Amendment rights. And I think what's so interesting is that when you're organizing a march or something like that, like freedom of assembly, that's a collective um, thing. And you have to, it's not, you can't just have an assembly of just yourself. So I think that's, uh, I think social media has really helped in it being able to foster that. And I think that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And um, how do you, using social media and using your voice and using these students that um, have are mobilized on this issue throughout the country, how do you sustain the passion? Like how, you know, even after your march is over and the lobbying day is over, how do you plan to sustain the the the, the feeling that we need to act? In the urgency of it, yeah. In the urgency yeah. of it. Yeah, totally. Um, well, we're actually coming up with like a, a big demand right now, I think, is to get fossil fuel money out of politics. And so, you know, we're marching and we're going to have like a pledge hopefully, of, like, some sort of concrete action for representatives to take. And what we're going to do is, you know, with the elections coming up, you know, we're going, we're, we're still going to be taking action on those demands. Because when we're lobbying, when we go to Capitol Hill uh, to talk to our senators, um, we're going to have, we're still working on it. It's not released yet, but it'll be up on the website, like, by early May, late April. Um, but we're, we're releasing kind of a set of demands of what young people need from our leaders in order to have a livable future. And so after the march, we're, the march is just a, a launching point to get people's attention, to make people realize how much we care and to start the momentum and create a national moment. But then in terms of turning that moment into a movement, we're just going to keep, you know, utilizing those organizers into like continuing to, you know, get on our representatives about doing things like that, depending on, on, on sorry, get on our representatives about, you know, complying with our demands for them. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have those asks, and we're going to continue to be asking for it even after the action um, through different actions, whether that be, you know, social media um, actions or other mobilizations or other events. It really just depends on what kind of momentum we get, and then we'll figure out how to capture and sustain it. But we are looking for concrete action. We are looking to get, like, fossil fuel money out of our politics so we can, um, you know, actually pass good laws because if the fossil fuel industry all right now a lot of politicians take money from the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. to you know run their campaigns and so what what's happening right now similarly to the nra and what was what's happening right now in the gun debate um if all the politicians if many politicians depend on the fossil fuel industry um for donations and they're not going to pass laws against them right because they, they get money from them right. so that's kind of our goal and we're going to just continue you know Doing, doing whatever actions, like after the Women's March, they had like a day without women, they had the Women's Convention, they had, you know, other actions around immigration. So it, it's like that. We're just going to keep building the momentum. Um, yeah, I, I really like how you drew that connection between the NRA and fossil fuel money. And I feel like something with our generation, Generation Z, is that we are demanding from our elected representatives, we want transparency, we want we want to stop this corruption happening in Washington. And a lot of it comes down to that really binds all these issues um, that we care about is campaign campaign finance. So how do you think that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can kind of connect all these issues and do you see yourself working to um, stop, uh, you know, to enforce more campaign finance laws? Um, and get money and out of politics. Yeah, and get yeah. money out of politics. Yeah, totally. I mean, right now, you know, all my attention is just making sure that this movement is successful, but totally, you know, there are intersections with other movement and other movements. And for example, like I organized a walkout at my school because I stand in solidarity with the kids fighting gun violence and, um, you know, cause we're all just, you know, fighting for our right to live. So that's also where I draw a connection. Um, like, you know, the Parkland students are asking to live without gun violence and, you know, we're asking to live without, you know, climate chaos and with clean air and clean water. So there are many intersections between movements that you can that you can find, like environmental justice intersects with racism because right. communities of color and indigenous communities are much more likely to be affected, like are the most affected right now because of the way, um, you know, polluters feel uh, are able to get away with, like, you know, building a pipeline on indigenous land rather than, you know, um, in like a white town, for example. So, yeah, totally. Campaign finance is definitely something that I care about because it's really about who owns our politics. So, yeah, I'll definitely 
be advocating for that in the future. Um, but right now we're just working on, on making sure that this movement is successful and that we, you know, motivate youth across the country and hopefully the world to, to step up on climate change. Cool. Yeah, yeah so. we, we actually did an episode, one of our first podcasts was about environmental justice and environmental racism. And we actually um, interviewed someone from the NRDC. So I think it's an issue that it's going to come about. And that not enough people know about. Not enough people yeah. know about. Yeah. Um, so we, we both want to make a career out of activism and politics and work in law and government. And it, it seems that you do too. So how do we get people who are not as passionate about politics to engage in activism and do more than just vote? Yeah, well, I think that... Um one way that you can do it to, is to make people engage more is to offer, I mean, you know, this, this sounds really cheesy, but to offer, like, I mean, humans are communal animals. Like, we like community, and then we like to feel like we fit in. But to make it kind of, I mean, you know, like, going to marches and events can be fun because you feel like that sense of solidarity. And even if you're not, like, a, you know, a political nerd like myself, um, you still kind of feel like, you know, you're fighting for something, you're part of something bigger, and that biologically is, is like, what humans and, like, we're, we grew up, you know, in communities, um, so I guess a way to bring people in is, uh, what I like about marches and mobilizations is they're a good entry point because you feel that, like, solidarity and community, and it's, like, fun, um, to, you know, march with your signs and, like, feel like you're a part of something bigger, but then that's also an entry point to, like, okay, that was good, you know, marching, mobilizing is just the beginning. Mobilizing is just a strategy to get something. Mobilizing is not the goal. So you mobilize people, you bring them to a fun event, and they're like, oh, that was cool. And then maybe, like, they'll attend a meeting. And then suddenly, you know, they, they get more and more involved, even if they weren't, like, totally politically active. But it's because it's these entry points, like these fun, appealing things, like marches and rallies and different events and, you know, cool fundraisers or especially when there's, like, celebrities or something. But you, you kind of bring them in through, through that. And then eventually it's less about, oh, this is, oh, this event seems cool, but it's more about now I see how, you know, how this issue is important. It just kind of grows because you can't expect people to be like, wow, I'm going to advocate for this, like, on day one. You kind of have to ease them into it. Right. Yeah. So now we kind of want to shift away from organ, like organizing and mobilizing youth to more talking about climate change um, and the issue uh -huh. that we're actually facing. So how has the Trump administration changed or strengthened your fight to combat climate change, and especially given um, withdrawing from the Paris Climate um, Agreements and the DAPL pipeline? Well, there's certainly no pretending that stuff is being done. I feel like under the Obama administration, even though he laid more pipeline than any other president, mm -hmm. um, he, I don't know, because he, like, believed in the issue and spoke about it, people could kind of, you know, be like, well, someone's taking care of it. You know, we have a president who believes in it. Now, you, you can't, there's no way that, that you can, like, live under that, you know, fake disguise of, like, trying to calm yourself down, like, they got it. Obama's handling it. It's chill. You can't do that anymore. Um, first of all, he wasn't. And I think Obama was a good president, but there, I don't think he was the best on climate, but that's a different topic. Um, but, it, you know, you can't hide behind that anymore. So now there's no one taking care of it. And you can't even look to the EPA right now because, you know, Scott Pruitt, it's almost, it would be, it would be funny if it weren't real. Because it's, it's almost, it's just so yeah. ironic that there's, like, an oil executive serving as EPA. Right. I would laugh if it weren't, like, our reality. Um, but it's kind of the laughing while crying at the same time <laughs> kind of laugh. Um, right. Um, but but I, I, I do feel like he's, he's set us backwards. But I always try to find the silver lining in things because... You know, it can really be easy to get set back. And I think it's really bad that he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords and all the things that he's doing is horrifying. But there's what we can do about it is kind of see that, you know, now people... Now I feel like people can't rely on, you know, oh, our leaders are taking care of it, right? Because they're not. Mm -hmm. um, so now I guess that kind of motivates people to, to take action and, and to actually get involved and, and work on the issue because that just that, you know, facade of Obama's taking care of it is gone. Yeah, it, it's kind of the idea that, you know, if we have a Democratic president that 
um, we feel the certain complacency because we, you know, as you said, we think, oh, Obama's got it, his administration's got it. But I think, I mean, possibly the only good thing about having Trump as our president, it's really waking people up yeah. to say you can't just sit back and say Obama's got it. And we had the, and I think mm-hmm. that's part of being young that's so inspiring to me is that this is our future. It's not really going to affect, um, you know, older a lot of our, our yeah. you know, the older generations. Like, this is our world, and you're destroying it, and you don't seem to care. Yeah. Um, so, and then more on to climate change. What do you think is the most effective argument to convince people to change their lifestyle or in order to curb climate change or reduce their emissions? Like, how do you convince people? Um, I think a good way to do it is, I mean, it really depends where they're coming from. People don't like it when you sound preachy or annoying about it. Um, And, you know, if someone's just eating a burger and you're like, hey, you should go vegan because animal agriculture, like, like, like find the right time. Think of it as like a long-term strategy to try to convince people. Don't just be like, wow, you're eating meat. Because then that like, it, it gets people defensive, mm-hmm. and even if you're right, even if your facts are right, they feel personally insulted. Maybe just be like, "Hey, there's this cool documentary, Cowspiracy. You should I watch love it." With it. Me. I love that one. Yeah, I know that's what convinced me to like eat less meat because I'm Colombian, and so I come from a family where it's just like meat, right? Um, right? <laughs> it's just culture. But now I'm like, you know, I need to. There are other foods out there, um, but yeah. Yeah, you know, like, documentaries and, like, giving people the information and letting them, like, make, like, like they know the, like, I feel like, you know, reading people a list of facts is, like, not helpful, but I feel like documentaries are pretty cool because, like, they make people feel, and they're like, oh, wow, but then it, you know, and so I feel like showing people that and, like, giving them the information and stepping back and, like, let's say you sit down and you watch Cowspiracy with, you know, your friend and then you pounce on them right after and be like, see, haha, I told you, you should be... Just kind of don't do that. Just kind of give them space and let them let them come up with themselves. I also think that there's too much emphasis placed on personal action that made us. That's a myth that if we just turn off our light bulbs and or if we change our light bulbs and turn off the faucet and stuff, then we'll be fine. Like we need a systematic change on top of mm-hmm. um on top of personal changes. Agreed. So both need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think. I see that happening in our in our school where the people who are very um, active on climate change become very preachy. And I, I think, like you said, it, it's a, it actually makes it a negative for people yeah. who might have been open to it. And, you know, I think especially the whole thing on animal agriculture, I think a lot of people don't know, um, as we learned from Cowspiracy, that more than half of GHG emissions comes from animal agriculture. And it's a thing you can really change. And Brooke and I have been... Um, vegetarians for I think seven years now and just looking back on how much water how much greenhouse emissions that we um, saved um, it's really inspiring so I think more being positive about it with people rather than preachy is definitely the way to go yeah Um, because then people will like eat a burger in your face just to spite you exactly (laughs) definitely had that happened (laughs) um so and what I, I saw some of your Instagram videos and seems in the um work you've done um, to explain climate change to people. So what are kind of the baseline statistics and facts that you give people to explain to them how urgent this is? Okay. Well, I explain to them, first of all, the problem that we're in, you know, people like to talk about how, well, carbon levels have changed in the past, so we're just fluctuating. But for all of history, before the Industrial Revolution, all of Earth history went, cross, went up and down. Not Earth history, because there were times that, I, but for the whole times that humans, um, how do I say this? Okay. Before, bleh. okay, I got it. For so all of human history, you know, that we've evolved in, that the animals that, like, we live in, that we live with evolved with, carbon levels have always stayed under 350 parts per million. Mm. Parts per million is a way to measure carbon. So, so, They've always stayed under it. And now we're at 410, and it increases every single year. So um, 350, though, was the highest it ever got, but 280 is where we evolved at. So 280 parts per million to 410. And scientists say 
that in order for us to, you know, for civilization to continue as we know it, right, because, you know, climate change affects us. It's a very modern civilization because think about it. If you don't have, like, the re- if countries start losing resources and, and we don't have, you know, what we need to live, then we're going to start going to wars um, over resource war, climate wars is what people call them. Right. Um, when people are, it affects democracy because, you know, when people are scared, when there's not enough water, when there's chaos, you know, um, mm-hmm. that's how dictators take, because there's chaos, um, you know, that, that's how many dictators come to power. If you notice, dictators come to power um, when, when things are, are going bad for people. You know, Hitler came to power because Germany was going through a really hard time. Mm-hmm. So um, climate change, you know, affecting, it, it affects our politics, it, it affects everything. And so in order to avoid that, um, we need to get down to 350 parts per million. Um, and the only way we do that is by cutting our emissions 10% every single year, if we start now. So if we start now, but if we wait another year, it just gets harder, because then you have to go 12, and then it's 13. And, you know, so if we started back when the reports came out, this is, by the way, if you want to know where my science comes from, it's from James Hansen, who is considered, like, the father of founding father of climate science. He was like one of the first people who like testified in front of Congress in 1980 that this is the problem. Mm-hmm. And he's been like, you know, letting us know ever since. Um, back when his report, it came out in like 2012 or something. I don't remember exactly the exact year, but back then it was only 7%. We had to go down by 7%. Because of 2018, we've waited so long. Now it's 10%. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much the science I tell them. Um, that's what I tell the people that who already know climate change exists, but, uh, but I, I tell them like what we what we actually need to get to because a lot of the laws um, right now in our politics and stuff like that um, and for example even the Paris Climate Agreement um, it right now at two degrees Celsius is four hundred and fifty parts per million four hundred and fifty parts per million so that is too high um, so a lot of a lot of the laws being passed are, are very watered down and you know politicized because they're made by you know people who maybe do take donations from the fossil fuel industry and and can't do anything too radical because they just want to pass something. Um, but I, I usually tell them the science so they know exactly where we need to aim. We can't just slap climate on a bill or slap a carbon tax on a on a law and pass it and say it's a victory for climate. It has to be something that actually gets us down to what I call climate recovery, where we're in a spot where, um, where, where, our, where our Earth is recovering and we can eventually get back to a normal place. Yeah. I like to always think that like we're living in a blink of an eye and it just, it's crazy how our, our blink of an eye can literally fundamentally change the universe as we know it. And I yeah. think that gives us way too much power and especially, you know, like, Essentially, Donald Trump has the power to change the course mm-hmm. of not only human history but the entire universe. So I, I it, it saddens me that that's what that's come to. So uh, yeah. I know. Well, that's why we need to like take back the power and you know, right? Yeah, make the change ourselves in our own communities. Passing laws in our states and stuff like that, and in our cities, um, local stuff is good. Yeah. So on this podcast a lot, we talk about the importance of engaging with people we disagree with and um, with the understanding of the other side. That's the only way that good policy can be created and then how they can at least be passed. Um, But have you ever engaged with people that deny climate change and have those interactions ever been successful or at least enlightening? Um. I live in a blue bubble in Seattle where I person where I'm just like I don't even want to talk to you. This is bad until I met this woman. Her name is Debbie Dooley. Now I disagree with her on pretty much everything. She's a Tea Party conservative, wow. a Trump supporter, was a delegate at the Trump election, and she's like a hardcore Republican. And I, in case you haven't noticed, I'm pretty liberal. Um, <laughs> Like, I got my start working for, like, the Democratic headquarters, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't exactly, you know, call myself a Republican at all. But she is, and the one thing that we agree on is on um, solar energy and climate. She believes, there's a, she, she works to, she herself believes in climate change, but she works to um, convince, you know, Republicans and conservatives to, like, you know, um, renewable energy and how sustainability is a good thing through a different philosophy. So she doesn't even use the word, she doesn't lead off with the word climate change at all because that's considered a buzzword. Like, like 
Okay, so there's this cool video um, on Vox. It's like how to talk to conservatives about climate change. And I saw her, I, I found out about her from that video. But oh, I then, watched that you know, video. I, I, I know yeah. exactly who this woman is. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're friends. Uh, I haven't talked to her in a while. That's but so yeah, cool. like, wow. I, I've called her every so often. That video um, was so enlightening. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't lead off with like climate change. You lead off with like, you know, you could, you know, the economy and, you know, green jobs and, you know, potential and, and, you know, and, and, you know, clean air, clean water, things like that. Things that people agree with, you start at a point they agree with, you start at like prosperity, um, you know, innovation and stuff. And even if it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't really matter why people do what they do to like, if it saves the earth. Like if I put up solar panels because, or if I vote to like, you know, for candidates that are like for for renewable energy because I care about climate change and this other person votes about it because he cares about money because it's cheaper. It doesn't really matter what your motives were uh, because in the end, the solar panels are up and we're not digging coal. You know what I mean? So it's like that. You just have to like, you have to find a point of agreement. You don't just be like, hello, climate change, because they immediately shut down if you're a climate denier. I think, I think what's really interesting about that story and what I learned from watching that video was the importance of rhetoric when you're talking about an issue. And when you're talking to different groups of people, you have to kind of change your rhetoric. And I think what often works for more conservatives or people who are much more traditional Republicans in general is talking about lifting up fellow Americans, improving innovation and prosperity, as you said. And so I think that's like a great lesson, not only for climate change, but for other issues that we want to convince people we disagree with about and kind of getting on their level and, and trying to convince them in their own terms. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you think that climate change denial will be a common ideology in our generation or do you think that will be dispelled um through time um well it'll be dispelled only if we make sure it's dispelled i mean climate climate denial is not even like a normal thing the the country the united states is literally like the only country where like a major party like that is their official yeah like like there's no other so the only, the only reason that is is because, you know, the fossil fuel industry has them in their pocket. And if they're like, yeah, climate change, fossil fuels, and animal agriculture bad, like these big agriculture industries and these big fossil fuel industries, like, they get money from them. So most of the – okay, the people who are, like, uneducated, you know, like the, the average worker who, like, these people who, who elect these leaders into office, maybe they genuinely believe that climate change doesn't exist. But I do, I do have a feeling that some of these, like – Republicans who are like, you know, well-educated who are just preaching climate denial. I think a lot of them actually like know the science, but they're, they're saying it because they have to. Um, and I also think among our generation, it's already, the the debate is kind of dying. So first of all, the earth, you know, no, nothing's changing. It's fine. The second is, okay, yeah, maybe it's changing, but it's not fossil fuels. The third is, and that now it's like, oh, yeah, okay, fossil fuels are changing it, but um, it's too late now, so I guess we're just going to enjoy the ride down, mm-hmm. you know? Right. That, that, that's, that's, that's even been something, like, in liberal circles where they're just like, well, it's too late. We're just going to, you know, enjoy the end of, you know. Yeah, just- I think that's the most damaging thing to say, actually. Yeah. So- I, I hate it when people say that. It's yeah. like, no, we're not going down without a fight. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about how we need legislation and how you're going to lobby Congress um, in the summer um, for um, legislation on climate change. So what specific kind of policies do you want to see statewide and federally uh, that you want these legislatures to implement? Okay. So let's say that, you know, fossil fuel money is out of politics and we have people in there who are willing to pass, you know, what we need in order to have climate change. Um, you know, carbon taxes are good, I think, if, if they're done right. Um, so, first of all, the carbon tax, um, it, for those of you who don't know, uh, who are any of your listeners who don't know what a carbon tax is, it's pretty much um, you, you make industries who pollute, you know, pay for polluting so that it becomes it becomes cheaper to just switch to renewable energy than to pollute because every for every, like, ton of carbon, like, that, or, or I don't know what the measurement is. It really depends per law. They have to pay, like, a m- money. Mm-hmm. Um but in order for carbon tax to work, the amount of money has to be a lot that they have to pay because if it's just a little, and then these big corporations are like, Psh, I can pay that. 
it has to be like a ton of money that they lose because they pollute. So the carbon tax has to be very high. And then that money that, that you get is then redistributed into like reforesting projects and, you know, um, frontline communities who are affected by, you know, let's say hurricanes to like rebuild and renewable energy projects. So I think carbon taxes, but carbon taxes done right with high prices and, um, you know, that money going to uh, actually, you know, help solve the issue. So we're taking away the money from the polluters and we're putting it into like renewable energy projects and reforestation and, you know, um, repairing people who like repairing the communities that are suffering from climate change, like, you know, Puerto Rico um, mm-hmm. or other places that have been affected. So that's one. Um, yeah. And I, I just think, you know, passing laws that make it um, easier for um, solar energy to, to, and other renewable energies to to boom because I think in some states there are some laws or people are trying to pass the laws to like make it harder for solar energy and renewable energy um, to 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 get big because you know the fossil fuel has an interest there. So if we pass laws to make it easier for those companies so they can really um, so they can really boom, that's another good thing. So one of our favorite phrases about activism is think globally, act locally. So in regards to climate change, how can people our age act locally to combat climate change and other environmental issues? Well, there are many things you can do. So I say like there, it's like, hmm. so there's yourself, there's your family, there's your community, and then there's like your politicians that you can affect. So yourself, it's, um, so there's like different rings of a tree. So I guess, for yourself, the way that you can act locally is, you know, I, I realize that, you know, sometimes people have health issues that don't allow them to, like, go vegan or vegetarian. Um, but if you if you don't have, like, a condition, um, like, I always like to say, don't be a butthole vegan. Like, there are those vegans who are like, I don't care if it's going to hurt you. Like, it, like there, there's, like, some insane people on the Internet. Yeah. But, okay, so if you can go to, to a plant-based diet, do that. You know, do all the normal um sustainable things just buy less stuff Mm -hmm. um it's consumerism like there's this thing called like greenwashing of like companies where they'll just be like sure this lipstick is less toxic than others i guess and then they'll like slap some like nice bamboo stuff and make it look all green and then you're like "Ooh, i'm gonna buy it the best thing you can do for the environment is consume less stuff um so that's yourself and then like in your family if you have like you know having conversations about you know if your family can change your lifestyle or you know, having conversations if you can, but with your parents, you know, let's say your parents aren't following local elections very closely and are going to vote for someone who's, like, anti-climate. You can, like, talk about, you know, voting for the right people. Um, having conversations with your family if, you know, you have climate deniers or people who don't think it's not a big deal in the family. And then there's taking action in your community and 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 politically. Um, politically, you can... One thing I hear from politicians a lot that is kind of preventing them from taking action is that they don't hear enough from people that climate change is a priority, right? So the way that, you know, politicians really all they care about is like votes because if they don't get the vote, they're not going to keep their job. Um, But, you know, and so they tally, you know, how their constituents feel by like, you know, if people get a lot of, if call them a lot. So if people are calling, you know, a a local representative about like healthcare done and they're like, wow, my constituents really care about healthcare. I should do something about this. They don't hear enough about climate change. So it's not even like sometimes it's not a priority to them because they don't think their constituents care about it. So like calling your local representative, like your congressperson, your state legislator, your city council member, and even making meetings with them in person and like talking about local bills and things that matter to you and just how much this issue matters to you um, is really helpful. And, you know, I literally, my city council is like right by my school. So I sometimes I just bust down there and then I just have, I literally have my backpack still on and I request a meeting and I like talk to someone. It's really that easy. You know, they're, they're meant, you know, sometimes it feels like, Oh, I don't want to bother them, but that's what public servants are for. That's right. what politicians are for. They're, they're there for the people at least. Well, that's their, that's their job. They don't usually do it, but that's technically what they're for. Um, and then in your community, you know, starting community initiatives, like, you know, let's say, you know, raising money to put solar panels on your school, if that's something that you can do, or um, community garden or something like that, or, you know, um, whatever initiatives are in your community, you can always take those. Joining a local organization, um, I think the more grassroots, the better. Um, 
Zero Hour, we like to partner with both um, big organizations, but also, you know, we're starting to reach out to the big organizations now that we need that boost and, you know, we, we want to work with them. But we started off, like, you know, working with the tiny organizations, you know, um, Rising Hearts, Indigenous Coalition, you know, community organizations, because that's where, like, the real solutions are, like, in communities. And so you build you build a, a base with that, and then you, then you go big. But those are just kind of some of my tips. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I agree with everything. And I think people in, um, in, I know our age, I think the most common way we give up our power is not knowing we have any. And I think um, just what you said, you, you telling everyone, like we have so much power to influence our yeah. politicians and it's actually so easy. They Like the politicians, they work for us. Yeah, they work <laughs> for us. So I think that's a great idea. Um, I just have one question. So you talked about reducing consumerism as a way to um, do your part to combat um, environmental issues. And I completely agree. I've read the science on it. Um, But how do you reconcile that with also if we buy less stuff, it hurts the economy? Yeah, well, I guess switching the economy to, because right now our economy is just based off of just people buying crap that they don't need. Like phones are actually, should actually last so long, but because there's that consumerism, they're actually like, like there's a reason why they switched the chargers so you can't like you buy new parts to the phone and so you have to buy like a whole new phone if it's broken. There's a reason why it's cheaper to get a whole new television than to get yours fixed sometimes. And so it, and I think in the story of stuff, there was even this thing of how like they build a phone to break by a certain time, so you have to. Yeah, get I saw new, that. Like, yeah. Our our culture is just so buy random crap and it's just, it's, we're just using nature as a credit card with no spending limit, but there is a spending limit. Like there's not an unlimited amount of resources. So, you know, buying less things and, you know, maybe at first the economy takes a hit, but then, you you know, you have to, you know, you always have to acknowledge like people's jobs and livelihoods, but kind of making, turning the economy um, into something that, that, that is more sustainable and runs on, um, you know, jobs that aren't producing crap that we don't need. And a lot of these jobs, like in factories and stuff, they're also unjust for people. Um, like, like climate change intersects with a lot of other issues. Like the, the, the consumerism and the sweatshops, um, you know, the consumerism is bad for the environment, but it also, how do you think, you know, we get all this cheap stuff? It's because our sweatshops abusing workers overseas because they don't want to comply to, like, safety laws in the United States. So they just go overseas to, like, Bangladesh, and they're like, cool, we can take advantage of people here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, buying less stuff, eventually, you know, we can transition our economy into something that, that is a little more sustainable. Yeah, I agree. And I think I always think of the idea that if we don't ha- have a planet, we don't have an economy. Yeah. So I think we need to prioritize yeah. the planet. So, Yeah. And they don't go hand in hand. It's not like, do I have a planet or an economy? Mm-hmm. It's like hurting the planet is bad for the economy. Yeah. <laughs> like not having food, not having water, not having the resources you need to live is bad for the economy. Exactly. <laughs> like yeah. It, yeah, and it creates like, it's, it's climate change creating humanitarian crises. Like there's climate refugees now, which is new. So, um, yeah. Um, so, and yeah, and like I said, climate wars eventually, like it's just going to get worse. Yeah, there's going to be wars so over water, like, yeah. Yeah. Water wars, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it seems that you know so much about climate change and its itch- issue, which is so amazing. So how do you educate yourself on climate change and how do you stay up to date on the new science and the new statistics and just continue to be informed? Well, because I work in, like, environmental organizations and stuff, I just kind of learn how I go along. It's not like you have to, like, I learn as I go along and I learn new things with every project I work on. Um, it's not like I just sit there and I'm like, let's read up science because honestly it's depressing and sometimes I like try to avoid it because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to. There's still that part of me that is just like, I don't want to think about it. Um, but obviously it's like my day-to-day job. Well, I say job, but I don't get paid for anything. <laughs> the job just think about it. Um, so you consider yourself to be a climate activist. So do you think it is important that we everyone picks an issue and is specific about their activism or it, or in other words, should we fill a niche or be more generalists? Um, it really depends for me. It really helps to fill a niche because 
I trust that, you know, other people, I think filling a niche is good, but then showing up to support other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, climate change is my niche. I think that is the most important issue and the defining issue of our time. But that doesn't mean that when the March for Our Lives comes up, I won't volunteer to show my support, you know? That doesn't mean I didn't organize a walkout. Like, I organized a walkout at my school against gun violence because you can care about more things than one, even though climate change is my top priority, and I think it should be, like, for everyone because it's, like, the it's you know it's an existential threat that doesn't mean i'm like okay gun violence doesn't exist to me no it exists to me too like i'm i'm still scared about of like gun violence so then i feel like you know people can can kind of pick their area that they're most passionate about because i feel like people a lot of times are really passionate about something and, and then they work in that not it's not that i don't care about you know reproductive rights or or women's rights or whatever else you know is that you care about it's that i trust that other people are working on that um, because I'm working on this and they're trusting that someone was working on climate change, but then we need to help each other. So the women's rights groups uh, need to show up, you know, for the zero hour youth march and lobby day and support us and, and make sure that, um, that, you know, we're successful, but then I'll go to the women's march and make sure that they're successful. So kind of like that, just helping each other out. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to show up for other causes too. But I think it's also important to have an area kind of of your expertise because I think that's where the most effective activism comes from because you know, you want to be up on the subject that you're most passionate about. And I think if you're most passionate about it, that's where you'll be most effective. Yeah. Um, so now we, we want to talk about um, the court case that you're involved with. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm working with the organization um, Our Children's Trust. Um, and our Children's Trust is a pro bono law firm, which means that the lawyers aren't paid. Um, they, it's a nonprofit organization, so they make money elsewhere. Um, but the lawyers work for free to help young people sue our governments over climate change, pretty much saying that we have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But because, um, you know, we can't have we can't pursue happiness if we don't have clean air, clean water. So it's helping young people sue our governments over climate change because the governments have known, by the way, the U.S. government has known for the longest time that fossil fuels are harmful to this planet and that they're causing havoc on our generation. And it's true. And they knew about it, but they still continued to not only do nothing, because they're not doing nothing, they're actively making it worse. Like they're going out of their way to make it worse. It's not like they're just, it's not like nothing's happening. It's the opposite. They're making it worse. And so we're suing them over that, saying that they're, you know, hurting our generation and going against their constitutional rights. So so I read um, the press release about the case, and um, I read um, your let, um, the youth letter to the governor. Um, and so you're basically arguing that the governor's actions infringe on your constitutional right to life, liberty, and happiness. So... I don't know if you know this, the like the intimate details of what the lawyers are doing um, for litigation purposes, but how do you think they're going to argue this or show damages? Um, well, the way they argue it is really you just, it's not even a big secret. You just look at how they're investing in fossil fuels. You just look at how, you know, the governor, um, you know, is, is okay with, you know, a, a new liquid natural gas terminal, even though the last thing we, in, in Washington State, even though the last thing we need is more fossil fuels. So um, some of it, it's not even a secret. It's just you just have to look at the actions of our politicians, and they don't match with what needs to happen in order for um, the kids to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I read that, like, Ins- Governor Inslee calls climate change an existential threat, but I saw that you said um, he's better at talking about the threat than fighting fighting it. And can you elaborate on that and also talk about his clean air rule that went into effect um, this January? Yeah. Okay. So I think Governor Inslee has the best of intentions. I pick on him a lot, but mm-hmm. um, it's well-deserved picking, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I do think he 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 has, like, he believe, I, I, I think he's a good guy and I think he genuinely cares, but his actions just don't match what he says at all. First of all, not a substantial piece of climate legislation has been passed. Um, and now we're a majority Democrat, um, you know, so there's, there's in, in the Washington State Senate, so th- there's no excuse. Um, 
But, you know, he hasn't passed any substantial climate legislation. And, for example, the clean air rule, he loves to brag about that. But we had to sue him to get it. But he doesn't mention it. I was at an event, um, and he was sitting there bragging about his great clean air rule when the kids who would sue him were right there sitting at the table right in front of him, didn't even acknowledge us, didn't even say, you know, young people pretty much, I was literally court-ordered to do this. Yeah. I didn't even, he didn't do it in his free will. He was court-ordered to put in that clean air rule. And it's the suckiest clean air rule. I'm sorry, <laughs> scientific term suckiness matches this clean air rule because <laughs> literally in order to, he just did the bare minimum that he could do and that's nothing. So in order to, um, to have a livable future and get down to 350 parts per million, we need to lower our emissions by 10% each, each year. So the clean air rule needs to lower emissions by 10% and regulate all corporations. This clean air rule only uh, lowers it by 1% and regulates the grand total of 19 corporations. So not it's, it's, just, it's pretty much just something to talk about and be like, see, I did something. But in the terms of, you know, Washington State's ecosystem and, and climate, it doesn't do anything. And then, for, for example, he's okay with, you know, a liquid natural gas, fracked gas terminal when he says he's the climate guy? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And plus... Um, we had to fight him so hard to stop to deny the North America's largest oil terminal or what would have been North America's largest oil terminal. Um, he denied it after Sierra Club, you know, there was just a huge fight to just get him to say no. It should have just been a no-brainer. You know, it should have just been like, oil, bad, done, okay, great, moving on. So I could go off. I just get, it's just annoying because um, in Washington State, he's kind of glorified a little bit as, like, the climate guy. But that's because he talks so well. You hear him talk, and you're like, wow, we're doing great. Everything's fine. Uh, but then you look at the actions, and you're like, ooh. Mm. Yeah. And so we live in Connecticut, and we actually, our governor is, um, he's terrible. Not running for re-election. He's really terrible, but he's, he, he's, he's not running rat. for re-election. Mm. Um, and so we have a governor's race coming up, um, and we don't really have a, you know, solid candidate mm. on either side yet. But what do you suggest for kids in our state to do to put pressure on the candidates to push for climate change and all of that stuff that you just talked about? Well, pretty much just expose them. The best thing that kids can do is just feeling the emperor has no clothes. You know, mm-hmm. expose them. It's just like, you know, in the, the town hall where that kid, um, I don't remember his name, but he asked Marco Rubio, Will you take money from the NRA? Will you stop taking money from the NRA? And he's like, well, um, uh, I look at the Second Amendment. Uh, and he didn't answer the question, and it was totally like clear how the NRA owned him. And it's just like that. You, you pretty much, you know, you approach them, especially in like a public setting like this. So there's a town hall or something. That's great because you ask them a question, and then they're like, there's, there's the peer pressure of like all of his people people there or like in front of media or you know you know it's really just about holding them accountable and the first step is always saying identifying the problem and so saying we see a problem we see through your lies you're not doing anything in fact you're not just not doing anything you're making it worse and we we see you and as kids we can point out corruption and no one can be like well you're corrupt too because you know we're just kids um so that's a good weapon that youth have is you know pointing out corruption and just identifying that and holding them accountable and kind of, you know, like I said, the emperor has no clothes, kind of, you know, stripping them of that, you know, they hide behind, you know, they BS people and stuff and, you know, we can cut straight through it and that's a good power that young people have. And then people can't point to, you know, they can't point to us. And because in politics, it's always like a, oh yeah, well, what I did is bad. Well, look what you did. But no, we don't have that. We don't have any of that baggage or any of that corruption. Um, So we can, we can just point out and start to hold them accountable. And if, if, if there's enough public pressure, they'll change. Because remember, they need to vote. So if enough people are like, I'm not voting for this guy if he doesn't like, you know, take good action on climate change, then he's going to have to take good action on climate change because otherwise he's not getting any votes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, switching gears to talk more about this climate march that's happening in July if anybody listening wants to get involved, how do you suggest they get involved with it? Yeah, so the best way to get involved, um, well, first of all, the easiest thing you can do is follow us on social media. Um, for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, um, it's the at sign. Obviously, it's just the tag sign. And then this is zero hour because this is zero hour to act on climate change. You can also look up the hashtag, hashtag this is zero hour. That's our hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that's just social media and you know you know social media activism only gets people that far so spreading the word and retweeting and stuff is great but that's like a bare minimum um donating we are definitely need a fund so like if you are a young person listening to this you know you know you know your parents might even be able to give like what ten twenty dollars something very small even like five bucks anything helps um so on our website, um, which is thisisyourhour.org, everything is this is your hour, the hashtag, the um, the tag, the website. So it, it's pretty easy to remember. And then there's just the donate button. And then there's also a volunteer sign-up form where you can sign up to volunteer because we are still looking for people to, you know, boots on the ground working on this. So, yeah, those are the main ways that you can get involved. And then just, you know, spreading the word and bringing people in. Yeah, and just to show people how easy it is to donate to your organization, I literally just punched in my credit card and donated um, <laughs> right now. So. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it's, yeah, and um, yeah, all that money goes to, um, you know, making sure the event is pulled off. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so this is not really about the environment or climate change, but kind of the mission of our podcast and um, kind of our media company is to show the world that Generation Z doesn't really care about partisanship and we want to supersede partisanship actually and polarization with cooperation, unity, and honest conversation. Um, do you agree with this? I totally agree with it. I think we get too caught up in the, you know, elephant, donkey, red, blue, that, you know, we, we see... We dehumanize, we, de- the words, we dehumanize each other and, you know, we, we realize that we have them, you know, a lot in common. You know, everyone wants their kids to have clean air and clean water. No one likes, you know, living in a dirty environment. No one likes, um, you know, there are a lot of things that um, we agree on and, like, we're all human and, I, you know, everyone cares about these things. But just the way they're framed, it just makes it seem like the other side, you know, hates everyone and wants us to die. And I don't know, we just... We just dehumanize each other, and that's kind of dangerous, and I'm not for that. Like I said, I don't agree with, like, like that, that woman, Debbie, um, the, the very conservative Republican. Like, you know, I don't agree with her on most things except for climate change, but she's still a person and a human, and, uh, you know, we, we can get along. It, it's like that. I mean, obviously, I just... I don't know, partisanship gets in the way of, of, of us both accomplishing things, and then it, it's just, we're just both hurting our own interests, both sides, if we just be like, I'm not going to pass this. Like, like think about what happened with Obama. A lot, a lot of people, Republicans, you know, agreed with some of the stuff that he did, but because of the partisanship, it was like, I'm going to block this from happening just because I don't want the Democrats to have a victory right. or vice versa, yeah. you know, and then that just hurts all of us because maybe the law was good for everyone and it would have helped a lot of people, but because you don't want the other side to have a win, you block it and you hurt people just because you don't want to give them the um, pride of winning, which right. is ridiculous. Yeah, I think this maybe this is just me being idealistic, but I think our generation, like Generation C, is different in that we don't care if you're conservative or liberal or Democrat or we Republican shouldn't, or we shouldn't. I think I think we're gonna realize we just want to get shit done, and we don't care who proposes it. We don't, and so like you know, just bringing it back to climate change, like if you know a conservative like Rand Paul or you know Margaret Rubio or someone like that who just I disagree with on basically everything proposes like this sweeping climate change bill that will that will. Um, that really help curb climate change, I'm all for it. I'm 100% for it. And I don't care where it comes from. And I think that's what I hope for our generation. Yeah. um, I agree. Yeah. So so for the final question, um, we always like to ask at the end, what piece of culture, um, it could be a book, movie, song, article, or product, do you recommend that everyone consume? Hmm. On climate... Sure. I mean, it could be anything, but climate's great too. Well, on climate, I would recommend everyone go watch Cowspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree but with that. In general, oh, that is a good question. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know what? I'm going to be, like, in the shower, and I'm going to, like, think of something great. Piece um, <laughs> hmm. of media. Oh, yeah, you. There's so many that it's just they're all just buzzing in my mind, yeah. and so I just. 
I mean, I oh, think Cowspiracy is great. Yeah. I fully Cowspiracy support that. Cowspiracy is great. Go watch it. Yeah, literally. You know, Cowspiracy. Um, oh, oh, I know, I know. Awake a Dream from Standing Rock. That documentary. Uh, okay. So it's on Netflix. So anyone has Netflix, you have right. no excuse. you got to watch it. Yeah. It's called Awake, and the subtitle is A Dream from Standing Rock. And it really shows, you know, the fight that, you know, indigenous people, um, it just fought, you know, against the pipeline. But it also ties into the bigger climate movement. But it's also, it's just riveting. And it's just, you watch it and you're like, wow, you know. It also gets us out of that, like, colonial mindset, and it makes us feel like, wow, you know, um, and, you know, even though I'm not Indigenous, after, you know, in the climate movement, especially in the Pacific Northwest, where a lot of the tribes are active here, um, you know, fighting, like, the Puyallup tribe is fighting the pipeline and stuff, and, you know, a lot of times, like, there are ceremonies led by, like, Indigenous people blessing an action or something like that. Um, it's made me more aware of just the everyday injustices you know, against, you know, indigenous people and how that ties in. And that's something I've become passionate about, especially as I've made friends with some of the Standing Rock youth. Um, so, yeah, it's just an amazing documentary. It's on Netflix, Awake, a Dream from Standing Rock. That is that is some solid media right there. That's great. That's great. And, and uh, for a final plug for your march, if people want to actually participate in the march, when is it and where is it? Yeah, um, so it's July 21st, um, 2018. The lodge day, we're still deciding the date, but it's either the Friday before or the Thursday, sometime that week before. Um, it's the lobby day. Um, we're still working around that stuff. And it's the 21st, and um, right now there has been some talk of sister marches and stuff, but there aren't. we don't have an official map yet. To So if you don't know of a sister march in your area, by all means, organize one. We're going to release a toolkit soon on our website. Um, and it's going to be... Um, on Capitol Hill, um, the march. So by where like the Senate building is. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah of we, course. Thank we, you for taking the time to talk. Okay, and that's our episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jamie and found it as enlightening and fascinating as we did. We also hope that you're now inspired to do activism on a local, state, and federal level to make the change you wish to see in our country. Yeah, and I think it's also important to support our fellow people in our generation that are working to uh, make change too. So I would be great if you could go to her march in DC or if you are so empowered, start your own sister march in your local area, which would be amazing. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, It'd be great if you could just leave us a little comment or ask us questions too. And follow us at uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, the handle is at WeAreDeltas. And we'll explain a little m- bit more about what's to come in the future.